yes, as Josh reminded us, it is the end of summer. In the 9 a.m. service, when I said that, someone went, woo! (laughs) And I thought, okay, so some of us are excited for the fall, and that's great. I have great news for you. I was driving down the street the other day, and I saw this row of trees, and the leaves were were already all starting to change colors. (laughs) And I was like, don't you dare. So I'm going to be soaking up the last little bit of summer, but I am uh, excited uh, to find us at the end, uh, end of our series today. Um, I'll be honest, initially, like before I took a deeper look at this passage, I was a little bit worried about how this morning was going to go. Uh, Colossians as a whole is this amazing New Testament letter. It's filled with so many beautiful passages, but this last chapter, like if you don't pay too much attention, it might not seem particularly compelling. At first glance, you know, maybe it seems like the real meat and potatoes of the letter have already been communicated, and now we have these kind of standard closing remarks where Paul just ends things off with a few general thoughts and some customary greetings before signing off. I do love his sign off, by the way, it's epic. Remember my chains, may God's grace be with you. Like, mic drop. All right. Paul's so great. But Overall, just a simple analysis of this final chapter of Colossians looks like this. We have a call to prayer, instructions to be wise and grace-filled when interacting with non-Christians, final greetings, and Paul's signature and blessing. And so before I got started working on this particular message, I wondered, like, is there enough here for a whole sermon? Like, what am I going to say? But then as I spent time with this chapter this week, a new concern quickly emerged. How in the world would I be able to fit everything into just one message? So I was surprised by this text, and I hope that today you will be too. So let's go. We're going to start with uh, Colossians 4, verse 2. Um, And I did actually ask uh, Josh to to read verse 1. It's actually um, sort of part of both passages. So um, Pastor Joel, in his message a couple of weeks ago, uh, this was part of that message because it connected to the passage he was speaking about. But a little later on today, we're going to circle back to, to verse one uh, because it also belongs to come belongs to what comes next. It's like a bridge between chapters three and four. But for now, we'll start with verse two, where Paul writes, "Devote yourselves to prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer." So. Here, Paul is actually bringing the letter full circle. And maybe you remember he began in chapter one with this amazing prayer for the Colossian church. And now Paul returns to this idea of prayer, only this time he's asking the Colossians to pray, to be devoted to prayer. Um, And we might kind of breeze by these words quickly thinking, yeah, prayer, that's a good thing to do. Most of us have a sense that it's a good idea to pray and that it's something we should probably do more of. But Paul's call to the Colossians is more than just a general suggestion to pray more for their own benefit. So first, notice that Paul says to pray with an alert mind and a thankful heart. And it's worth just thinking about these two concepts for a minute, being alert and being thankful. Being alert or watchful, this gives us a sense that something important is happening. Pay attention. The Colossians need to be ready. They need to be attentive to the moment of what's happening in the world around them. They're to notice how God is already moving and be attentive to discern how God wants to move. And this is what must shape their prayers. 
And as they pray, they should do so with thankfulness. And the connection between thankfulness and prayer is, is hopefully familiar to all of us. There's a, a multiple verses that, that pair these two things together. And I think often we approach it in this way. Um, we kind of maybe start our prayer by finding things in our lives that we're thankful for and expressing that gratitude to God before moving on to asking for like the things that we want. And, you know, cultivating gratitude in our lives is not a bad thing. It's actually important. Studies have shown that it's good for our uh, well-being to do this. And it's not a bad thing uh, to not just be grateful for the things we have, but to remember uh, who it is who has given these things to us. So to recognize the good gifts God's given and be grateful for them. But the connection between thankfulness and prayer can actually go even deeper than this. One Bible commenter noted that when we pray with a thankful heart, our sense of gratitude lies not just in what God has already done, but also in our confidence of what he will do. And so we can bring prayer requests to God with thankfulness because we can trust that as we pray with attentiveness to God's leading and we align our hearts with his will and then bring our requests before him, he will respond. So devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Paul goes on to say, pray for us too. And this is actually an amazing thing if you think about it. Uh, now, just think back to the start of the letter. I don't know if you remember how Paul introduced himself at the beginning, but he said, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul, the apostle who was commissioned by Christ himself to bring the gospel, the life-transforming message of Jesus to the world, is asking that this church in Colossae would pray for him. Why is that? Like, Paul's kind of a big deal, right? Surely he's got this covered. Surely he's praying for his ministry. Why does he ask the Colossians to be praying for him? It's because he knows that prayer is what ignites the mission of God in the world, not human effort. And let me just read a different translation of this passage to you for a moment because there's some important imagery here that is, just isn't reflected in the NLT. So we'll flip over to the NIV. It says, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. So pray that God may open a door. Paul's on this mission to proclaim the good news of Jesus, but it's not enough for him to simply be willing to speak about it with those that he comes in contact with. It is God who opens the door for the message to be heard. And this open door that Paul is talking about is it's not just the opportunity to speak, but it's the, that precious opportunity for the word of God to be heard by minds and hearts that are open and ready to receive it. And this is beyond what Paul can do. This is the work of God's spirit, a God-initiated action that comes through the participation of his people who are called to devote themselves to prayer. You know, there's a famous 19th century English Baptist preacher named Charles Spurgeon. Uh, maybe you've heard of him. He was known as the Prince of Preaching because of the profound impact that he had through his ministry. And it's estimated that thousands came to Christ because of his preaching. 
And a group of young pastors once uh, came to visit him at his church, and he was giving them a tour of the building, and after showing them the large, beautiful sanctuary, he asked them if they would like to see the boiler room. They weren't much interested. (laughs) In those days, a boiler was a heating system that used gas, oil, or coal to heat a tank of water, and then the boiling water would create steam that could be pumped through the radiators that ran throughout the building, warming the rooms. And so these boiler rooms were typically really dirty and really hot, and so not a spot that anyone was keen to step into. But Spurgeon insisted, and so they went. And he led them down to the basement, and he opened a door, and to these young pastors, surprise. There in the boiler room, they saw 100 people praying for the church. So he called it his boiler room because boiler rooms were the powerhouses, the main power sources, the driving forces of everything, and so it is with prayer. And whenever Spurgeon was asked why his ministry was so effective, time and again he always replied, because my people pray for me. So it wasn't his eloquence or his gift of speaking or his loud, booming voice that could carry across a large auditorium without a microphone that moved people to repentance and stirred hearts towards Jesus. No, it was the Spirit of God at work and moving in people's hearts in response to the prayers that were flowing out of the boiler room every time he spoke. So Paul's words here in Colossians, his request that they would pray for God to open doors for the message to go out was this invitation for them through prayer to participate in the mission that Christ had commissioned him for. Prayer wasn't just something meant to be used for their own personal relationship with God. It was something that they could do in a powerful way to participate in the unfolding of God's redemptive plan for the world. And I just wanna take a moment, I wanna take this opportunity to kind of pause and just say thank you to those of you who pray for us. I know we have an incredible core of people here at North Park who pray for our church faithfully. You pray for our pastors, you pray for our elders, you pray for our services and the ministries that happen here and we are tremendously grateful for your prayers They are the steam that empowers everything that is of any worth that we do here at North Park. And your prayers matter because when you pray, God moves. So thank you for your prayers and please keep them coming. We need them. And as amazing and powerful as it is that Paul asked the Colossians to to join him in this work by praying for him, he didn't stop there. And listen to what he said next. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. And the NIV says, let your, con- your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. And now here, Paul's making a shift. He isn't now just asking them to pray for him as he does his missionary work. Now he's calling them to be missionaries in their own particular context. Just as God opens doors for Paul's ministry, so the Lord might be opening doors for them. And so as they interact with others, they are to make the most of every opportunity 
Keep watch, pay attention, devote yourselves to prayer and be ready. Make use of every open door so that the word of God can go out and transform lives and expand the kingdom. And so their conversations should be grace-filled and seasoned with salt. And salt's an interesting concept here. What does this mean for, uh, for conversations to be seasoned with salt? When my kids say that they're feeling a little salty, do you know what they mean? Like, have you heard this kind of used in our time? They mean that they are feeling angry or upset, right? They're feeling a little salty. And that's definitely not the way that Paul is using this here. We're not gonna reflect Christ's love to the world by being like ornery and grumpy and cranky. Jesus taught about salt. He taught that his followers were to be salt and light for the world. If we think about salt for a minute, it can add flavor. It can bring out the taste of our food, making it more vibrant. It also acts as a preservative. It can literally keep things from rotting. And salt creates thirst. So what does it mean for our words to be seasoned with salt? Salty speech can add vibrancy and passion to a conversation. It can help save someone from destruction. And it can cause a longing for more, a thirst for Jesus. Do we know how to talk like this? How would people describe our words? How are we representing Christ to the world through our speech? It's worth thinking about. Now back to Paul's letter. At the beginning, he prayed for this budding Christian community in Colossae, but even now as they continue to grow in their faith, They're invited to join in the mission by devoting themselves to prayer that will open doors and open hearts and by living lives that reflect the saving power of Jesus to the world. And we need to keep all of this in view as we move on to the next section of the letter. Uh, And truly, now we come uh, to the part that particularly might seem not very exciting. In many ways, it appears to be that standard wrap-up of the letter with greetings from the letter writers to various people in the community. And so we might be tempted to just skim through this quickly, uh, maybe the way a lot of us skim through like those genealogies in the Bible, right? Um, in this passage, it's a lot of like, say hello to so-and-so, and so-and-so sends their greetings, blah, blah, blah. That's a direct quote from someone this week who was describing this passage to me. <laughs> yeah, that happened. Um, boring, or is it? As we take a closer look, you might be surprised by the way that these greetings actually give us an amazing picture of the early church, and they reinforce Paul's message to the Colossians, and there's even a little drama thrown in there for good measure. So let's have a look. There's three sections of greetings here. The first introduces the messengers of the letter. Then there are greetings sent from Paul's coworkers who are with him. And finally, some greetings to some specific individuals and groups of people in the area. And so first we have the messengers. Paul mentions Tychicus and Onesimus. And you might remember from the start of the series um, how letter writing worked in the ancient world. There was no Canada Post to get the letter to its destination, someone would have to be sent to deliver it. And here we get a picture of the role of the letter bearer. It was more than just dropping off an envelope on someone's doorstep. And so Paul tasked Tychicus and Onesimus for the job. They would travel to Colossae, read the letter out loud publicly, and actually spend some time with the community there. 
And Tychicus is mentioned first. Um, he's the main letter bearer. He was native to the province of Asia, but he worked and traveled alongside Paul and was a trusted and beloved friend. And notice how Paul tells the Colossians that he's sending Tychicus to encourage their hearts. There's this pastoral role that he, ha- that he has as, he has as he's sent to spend time with the Colossians. And Paul gives him authority to speak on his behalf, sharing further updates about how he's doing. Onesimus, though, this is where it starts to get really interesting. Paul describes him as a faithful and dear brother, so he, we know that he's someone very trusted by Paul, but he's actually got kind of a, a weird, unusual history with the Colossians. And Paul only hints at it here when he says, he is one of you. But we know from Philemon, which is another New Testament letter that was actually probably sent at the same time. We know that Onesimus used to live in Colossae and was actually a slave there in the house of Philemon. We don't know all the circumstances of his departure, um, but if you read through Paul's letter to Philemon, which was likely, oh, I said that already, it was delivered at the same time, that's okay. You can see the unfolding drama happening behind the scenes of Colossians. Onesimus, previously a slave in Colossae, had left on bad terms. We don't know. We don't know what the trouble was, but whatever the circumstances that caused him to leave, what happened next was that he met Paul, who shared the gospel with him. He became a Christian, and his life was transformed. He became like a son to Paul, he served alongside him, and now Paul was sending him back to Philemon with a heartfelt request to welcome him, saying he's no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother. These words are profound. There's this beautiful restoring of relationship that's happening here, and Paul is using his authority to establish Onesimus' place in the community as a trusted brother. He's challenging the social order, reinforcing what he has been teaching about God's kingdom, that in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. And actually, knowing Onesimus' backstory, you can hardly read the verses in chapter three that talk about slaves and masters in the same way. There's so much more going on here than we realize, and Paul is most certainly pushing back against the social order of the day. Next, Paul sends greetings to the Colossians from several people who were with him. This is like the say hello for me section of the letter. And do you ever use this phrase, like say hi for me? I actually caught myself saying it a couple of times this week. Uh, In one instance, one of the pastors here at North Park mentioned one day that they were meeting up with someone for lunch and it was someone that I knew and I hadn't thought about them in a long time and, and I was glad to be reminded of them. And so, you know, this was a really genuine thing, but without thinking too much about it, I found myself saying, oh, tell them I said hi. And in some ways, this gives us a bit of context for this section of Paul's letter. In the ancient world, it made a lot more sense to add these hellos in because it was likely their only opportunity to have this point of connection. With every person that Paul mentioned in this section of the letter, he was acknowledging and strengthening the connections between believers and the Christian churches despite the distance that was between them. And it fostered this sense of unity and togetherness 
Meanwhile, in our context, when someone asks you to say hello for them, it doesn't quite have the same effect. Because honestly, it's not that hard to just send someone a little note or find them on social media. There are so many ways for us to do the work ourselves and connect with people if we're truly interested in doing so. So does someone really need to say hi for us? And I wonder if you've ever been tempted to reply to a, a request like this, like when someone says, oh, say hi to me, do you ever wanna just say, like, say hello yourself, <laughs> right? Don't make me remember. Don't give me an extra job. So the jury's out on this one, maybe. Is it a nice way to add a little connection point or are we just being lazy? I don't know. And I kind of hesitated about including this in because I'm sure one of you in the next few weeks is gonna catch me saying this and you're gonna be like, aha, say hi yourself, Trish, right? So we'll see if it happens. Gonna try not to do it. But all joking aside, this say hello for me section of Paul's letter, it's not like that. Each mention, each greeting creates a connection that couldn't otherwise have been made, and it strengthens the ties of these believers despite the many miles that lie between them. And so first we have Aristarchus, and then Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, and Jesus, who's called Justice, so a little clarification there, so we know, like, not that Jesus. <laughs> and it's easy for us to kind of gloss over these names, but each one has a story, and the Colossians knew them. And in case you're interested, that extra comment about Mark does give us a little hint of drama. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. This actually tells us that Paul was a little concerned that they might not welcome him. And the story here is that Mark had defected back to Jerusalem for a time, and so he wasn't in good standing with the Christian community. They all knew he had kind of flaked out, and they were feeling maybe like he'd abandoned them. But he had actually returned and over time had redeemed himself. And so that Paul was now telling the Colossians they should welcome him in the future if he comes. Now all three of these men mentioned first uh, here were Jewish Christians. And this is a, a point that Paul drew attention to before moving on to extend further greetings from some of the Gentile Christians who were with them. There's Epaphras who you might remember was a missionary to the Lycus Valley. He was the one who first brought the gospel message to the Colossians. And he gets the most airtime here out of all the greetings, and for good reason. What's amazing about Epaphras is that he is the embodiment of all that Paul has expressed to the Colossians at the start of the chapter. Through his devoted prayers for the churches in the Lycus Valley, God opened doors for the message of Jesus to be received. It's amazing. And in this group, there's also Luke the doctor. This is the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts as well as Demas, who we don't know much about except that he was one of Paul's companions. But what's important here, I think, is that Paul's groupings, these three groups of three, were very intentional. He was highlighting that Christians from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds were among the community of believers who were united in serving together with Paul and supporting him during his imprisonment so these verses aren't just like a who's who of Paul's associates, the people that he wanted the Colossians to feel connected with. It's also another example of how the new social order that Paul had been teaching about in the letter was getting lived out. No longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. And finally, in the last section of greetings, Paul named some people and groups specifically. 
Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. So this gives us an interesting window into the early church. There's a lot going on here, but I'll try to be quick because I know our time is short. So first, there are multiple church communities here that Paul wanted to make connections with, and there's this growing network of churches in the area that would have interacted with each other, named sometimes by the city they were located in and sometimes acknowledged by their church leaders like Nympha. And here we also get a little window into how these New Testament letters circulated, right? They didn't just get read in one community, they got shared and sent around. And so this letter was written to the Colossians, but it was meant for others to hear it as well. And I think this is kind of cool for us to read today. In the end, Paul's words to the Colossians not only reached beyond their community to the church in Laodicea, it's reached across continents, and it's reached across the centuries to shape the global church and to touch our hearts and minds even still today. And as I thought about that this week, I couldn't help... um, but find it really amazing to think that the prayers that Paul prayed and the prayers that he asked others to join him in praying for God to open doors for the message to go out over all the earth are still being answered even now today. It's amazing. And what about this final person that Paul mentioned, Archippus? In some ways, it seems to come across as almost an afterthought. He's just like throwing it in, a quick little message to tell him, see to it that you complete the ministry you've received in the Lord. But if you think about it, Paul actually could have just asked Tychicus to pass that detail on in private. But instead, he shared it in a letter that he knew would be read publicly. And not only that, but he made it the very last thing that he said before signing off. So maybe it isn't an afterthought squeezed into the letter. Maybe like everything else that Paul has written here, this sentence has been very intentionally placed. See to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I can't help but wonder if Paul intended for those words to resonate with the Colossians as they heard them. We don't know what particular ministry Archippus was being called to complete, but in him we have this living example of someone who knew that there was an open door, an opportunity that they should make the most of, a particular way that they were called to serve. And this final greeting is a call to obedience to that mission, perhaps meant not only for Archippus, but for all who have caught a vision for the ministry that they are called to, Final words for all who have this growing sense that there might be a peace that they are called to hold, some kingdom bringing work that God wants to do in the world through them. See to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I hope you can see as we've reflected on these greetings that this is not just some fluffy, inconsequential ending to wrap things up. Here in chapter four, we find the culminating moment of Paul's message for the Colossian church. And this is our final message of the summer series, so I wanna just take a moment to think back on the letter as a whole. Leading up to the chapter we're looking at today, Paul's letter was richly filled with teaching, 
a beautiful prayer for the Colossian church. And then he laid out this incredible picture of who Christ is, the visible image of the invisible God, supreme over all creation, the head of the church and the one through whom God reconciled everything to himself. He then encouraged the Colossians to build their lives on Jesus, to rest assured in the sufficiency of Jesus and to not get caught up in false teaching that would weaken their trust and their reliance on him. Next, he talked about what new life in Christ should look like, instructing them on how to live in this new kingdom way that challenges the social, political, and economic structures of the world, calling them to set aside sin and lust and greed and all kinds of evil, and to instead clothe themselves with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then he fleshed out what it looks like to allow Christ-like love to permeate their most important relationships so that rather than seeking power and dominance through selfish ambition, they would instead take a low position to love and serve the Lord and one another in humility. All of this was embedded in the main body of this letter, who Christ is and what he's done for us and how we should then live in light of it. And now here in chapter four, Paul gives the Colossians the bottom line this call to prayer, this call to pray that God would open doors for the message to go out, and this call to participate in the work of God in the world. And now these words have reached across history to call us too, to call us forward into the mission of God. And to truly understand our place in this, we need to finish by going back and looking at verse one of chapter four, which I told you at the start, we would circle back to. It says, masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. And isn't it interesting that the editors who divided the Bible up into chapters and verses so we could easily find our way around saw this verse as being more important to link to chapter four than to chapter three. This sentence is key. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. And maybe you noticed the other times that Paul uses the word slave or servant in this letter. I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant. Tychicus, a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus. And the word translated as servant here can also be translated as slave. It's the same thing. Paul, Tychicus, and Epaphras, all slaves, servants of Christ Jesus, their lives fully given over to serving him, their Lord and Savior. This is at the heart of the letter to the Colossians. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. Remember that you are a slave too, that you are called to love and serve the Lord with all that you have. Therefore, see to it that you complete the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Therefore, make the most of every opportunity. Therefore, be watchful because God is ready to move. Therefore, be thankful because he will open doors and touch hearts and transform lives and restore broken things to new life in Christ. God will do it and you get to be a part of it. Therefore, devote yourselves to prayer. This is so important for us to hear and understand today this letter as a whole, the message that the Colossians received about who Christ is and what he's done, and these teachings about what new life in God's kingdom should look like for them. It's not an end in and of itself. There's work to be done, there's a calling 
on our lives. There's a purpose for us in the kingdom. This whole Jesus movement, God's arriving kingdom, it's not meant to be kept to ourselves. The whole of our story with God is not meant to be that we're each just personally saved for our own benefit, the end. It's not the end of the story. The end of the story, it's not about our individual happiness. The gospel is not about believing the right things and doing the right things so that we can live the good life for ourselves. It's not about conforming to the culture around us, blending in and just tacking a bit of Jesus on at the end. It's about a profound transformation that begins in our own lives and then extends out into our broken world. It's about giving our lives over to participate in God's redemptive plan for humanity. This is a mission that may require us to endure hardship and suffering and sacrifice and even a willingness to lay down our very lives. And we can do it because of the sufficiency of Jesus. Christ is enough. It's all we need. And you know, as I worked through the text this week and started piecing these thoughts together, there was one thing that I was really struggling with and it was, I just felt like there was a piece missing. And I think what was bothering me is that although these verses are so incredible and they're important for us to reflect on, how do we bring this down into our current reality? I wrestled with that. It's one thing to talk about participating in God's mission of redemption, but how do we do it? What does it look like? And as I thought about it, I realized that part of the struggle that I was having is that it's gonna be so different for each and every one of us, right? You are each gifted and equipped and wired so differently. You are each placed in specific families and specific workplaces. There's, there's so much that is different about our circumstances and, and the peace that God is gonna call each of us to hold in our unique time and place in history. And so there's no checklist I can give you. There's no one-size-fits-all solution of like, here are the things you need to go out and do. The, the thing that we have in common, though, in this is that it begins with prayer. It begins with prayer because the only way that we are going to make a meaningful impact in the kingdom of God is through the work of God's spirit. And so as I wrap up, I wanna end with a moment of prayer and I'm gonna invite you to participate in, in a way that's a little bit unique for us at North Park. Um, so be ready for that. But just to start, I just, just want you to close your eyes and I want you just to reflect on this question. Is there a step that God is stirring you to take? Is there something that he's drawing your attention to today where you know he wants to work and you need to pray into it? Is there a door that God's eager and ready to open? And if something is stirring, if you feel God nudging you in some way, calling you in some way, I just simply want you to lift your hand and that's all I'm gonna ask you to do and then I'm gonna pray for you and we're gonna all keep our eyes closed so no one's gonna see. But maybe there's a person that God is bringing to your mind today to pray for and just lift your hand. Maybe there's a way of living that God's calling you to step into or a ministry that you're feeling called to get involved with. Or maybe there's something God's calling you just to let go of because it's in the way and you need to make room for the kingdom work he has in mind for you. 
Maybe you're going through a season of suffering and there's just a way that God is calling you to walk through it with grace seasoned with salt that can be a witness to the world. Maybe you really don't know what it might be, but you're just, you're just willing. You're just saying, God, you know, give me ears to hear. I'm willing. Or maybe for some of you, there's a large-scale step of faith that you are starting to discern that you need to lean into. Just put your hand up and let me pray for you now. God, we have hands and hearts raised up to you in this moment because we wanna be obedient to your call in our lives. Lord, you know what the things are. You know the ways that you have gifted and equipped each one of us. You know how we should pray about these things. You know the doors that you wanna open, the ways that you wanna move, and we are humbled to know that you can and will use us, and we're grateful that you have a place for us, a purpose for us, a call on our lives, a way for us to participate in your beautiful work of redemption for the world. God, we know it is not just for us in our own lives, and we need to participate in this work. And God, we know it will look different for each one of us, and we know that what you are calling us to will not be accomplished by our own strength. And so in this moment, Lord, we ask for the work of your spirit and we simply offer ourselves to you. We give you our yes. We give you our hearts. We give you our lives. And as we do this, help us first and foremost to devote ourselves to prayer. Let the work begin today. As we offer our lives to you, Lord, lead us in praying for doors to be opened for the work of your spirit that many lives would be changed by the life-transforming, saving power of your presence in our world. We pray this, Father, by your spirit and through your son, Jesus.